A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, friends. Hey, this interview is one of my favorites that I've done so far. I've done about 50. Today, my guest is Scott Harrison. Scott is founder and CEO of Charity Water, an organization he started back in 2006 to bring clean water to people around the world. He's also the author of a book called Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. Appropriately enough, Scott describes himself in this interview as having become, at one point in his life early on, the most degenerate, hedonistic, sycophantic person that he knew. But that's part of what is so awesome to me about Scott and his story is the fact that it is possible to change. And you'll hear his transformation from a nightclub promoter and a party promoter. The more effective he was at that, the more money he earned. And he was able to turn his life around a complete 180. And as he's done so, he created a completely new model of how charities and philanthropies operate to where every single dollar that's donated to Charity Water goes to providing clean water to people in need. If you are interested to learn more about Charity Water and the great work they're doing or to get involved, you can visit charitywater.org spring. My wife and I joined. It's growing every month. Nearly 40,000 people as of this recording are getting clean water every month thanks to this spring community. And millions and millions more have because of Scott's work and his team and his organization. I hope you enjoy. I hope you take the inspiration from this that I did. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy this conversation with Scott Harrison. Scott, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks for having me. Nice, Scott. Nice to chat with you. Yeah, I'm so glad we finally connected. I read your book back in November. Okay. It's not I, short. Thanks for that. <laughs> no, I was on vacation in Hawaii. I had some time and it was a real gift. It, it really is a page turner. Thanks, man. Yeah. So Scott, what's life about? Ah, uh, what's life about? Uh, I think it's about living for others that, you know, for me, uh, gosh, I think the way I think about life now is how I can use the gifts that I've been given or the things that I've been blessed with to the benefit of others. Uh, and now I've got um, a bunch of kids at home. I've got this organization. You know, I'm waking up most days thinking of how I can really be a blessing to others. <laughs> that was not uh, how I would answer the question a bunch of years ago, but I think uh, I, I kind of came to the end of myself and uh, faith is a part of it for me. You know, family is a big part of it. The work that we get to do here, which uh, hopefully ends a lot of the needless suffering around the world. Yeah. You know, before I really... Sorry, that wasn't your soundbite answer probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It wasn't until about um, seven years ago, I did a program with Jack Canfield 
And I was privileged to be with 60 or 70 other coaches and trainers and facilitators. And one woman in a group I was part of, she said something to that effect about, I wake up every day and I pray for how I can be of service to others. Yeah. And that was the first time I thought, there are people like that on earth. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's really beautiful. How old was she? She was probably in her early 30s. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's unusual. I mean, I think you, um, you hear more about this in the second half of life and as people uh, start thinking about how to give their life away. And maybe yeah. the first half of life is how do they make the life for themselves. Yeah. So I'm past the 40 part now. I'm 43. Yeah. And I guess just looking at the second, the back half of life a little differently than the first half. Yeah. Although I don't think it's an, I don't think it's a kind of a, a shift in perspective that everyone has. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of, and this is my own judgment coming up, but a lot of self-centered people that don't necessarily, I mean, as we know, um, suicide rates for people, especially in developed countries in the forties start to really spike. And I think it's this idea of, is this all there is? This is all I'll ever be. Um, that's a depressing subject, but you found a way to really do work that does in fact benefit other people. And part of it is your book thirst. So my question for you about this book is why did you write it and how did you want the world to be different because of it? That's a great question. You know, since starting the organization, so I, I lead an organization called Charity Water. Uh, we're sitting here in our in our New York headquarters, and um, I, I think for years, even early on in the organization, people would just say to me, "Oh my gosh, you have this crazy story. You need to write a book." I mean, it sounds like it should be a book, you know, or or a movie. And I remember thinking, "I'm still living this thing. I mean, I'm still living the story. I don't know where it's going to end." It didn't feel like there was any permission or any right to look back and reflect. Um, I didn't think I had any wisdom. I just didn't have anything to offer. Uh, that changed, I think, when the organization hit 10 years, I turned 40 and had kids. And you know, now I, I'd built an organization that wasn't going to go away, um, that was helping you know, over a million people a year get access to clean water. Uh, you know, kind of hit the I'd been at it for a while, so I wasn't going to be a flash in the pan. I wasn't going to go back and become a nightclub promoter or go do drugs in, you know, some strip club. Uh, you know, I'd really lived out this, the, the new intention uh, of my life for more than a decade. And then I think having kids was really thinking about how I wanted them to know me, you know, going on record. Uh, I'd traveled to some pretty dodgy places of the world and, and death is, is often around me uh, in, in, just recently that Ethiopian air crash, you know, we, my team missed that by about 12 hours. So I, I think just wanting to go on record with some of the things that I'd learned. And then I really wanted the book to be a, a, a point of hope for others who may have made some bad decisions or maybe ruined their life and thought or, or believe that there's no getting past that. Uh, and, you know, and maybe we'll get a little more into my story, but you know, I was as I was as bad as they come. I was the most degenerate, hedonistic, um, sycophantic person that I knew, and managed to turn a new page, managed to change in a dramatic way that then led to a completely new life and a completely different intention for life. So I think I I, I know I've heard over the years oh, I feel stuck. I could never do what you do, mm. and I was hoping to say through the book, actually, you could. Yeah, I mean, if a degenerate drug addict nightclub promoter, you know, could give 10 million people access to clean water around the world and wind up with a beautiful wife and kids and, and a life that, uh, you know, I travel around the world speaking about generosity and compassion and empathy. I mean, these are the opposite things that I was living 
yeah. uh, a little over a decade ago. So I, I wanted that to be uh, a gift to others. I also wanted to raise awareness for this issue that I've spent 12 years working on, the, the global water crisis. Yeah. And I wanted to compel people to learn about this issue, to think about this issue, and then to get involved with us. I mean, I think it's crazy that today, as we're sitting here, and I've got a glass of water in front of me that came from a purifier, you know, here at, at the, in our kitchen, you know, right now, 660 million people are drinking bad water. It's one out of every 10 people alive. So thirst was really, the, even the title was double entendre. You know, my search for meaning and purpose, um, and then the literal thirst of 10% of the planet right now. Yeah, it, it is amazing that there are so many who have so little, including the most basic necessities to exist. Um, and what you, so you covered a lot in why you wrote it. And, and in fact, so I want to go back and, and touch on two things. One was about your, about who you'd become. You touched on that. And, and in the book, you say you had become the worst version of myself. Yeah. Right. And, and so what do you say to someone who's in the position of wanting to change, but they maybe don't believe they can, or they don't know how? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough to give advice. I mean, I, I can, I really just wanted to, ch to share my story. You know, I, I had grown up in a very conservative Christian home. My mom was an invalid. There was a terrible carbon monoxide gas leak in my house. And I grew up playing by the rules, helping to take care of mom. I mean, I was that, that, that kid playing, you know, piano in Sunday school on every Sunday. And, and then I just woke up one day at 18 and said, now it's my turn. You know, the, the utter act of rebellion, almost the cliche prodigal son story, just gave everybody the finger, my parents, the church, you know, everybody who had told me what I couldn't do. And then I went off to explore a life of vice and a life of sex, drugs and rock and roll and power and money. And, and I did that, unfortunately, for 10 years and then came to the end of, of that period, realizing that I'd actually gotten most of the things that I was chasing. Um, I had dated girls that were on the cover of fashion magazines. I drove the BMW. I had the grand piano in my you know, New York City apartment, and I had the Rolex watch and all these markers, these external markers of success. And the dog. You even mentioned I the had dog. The, yeah, right. I had the Labrador Retriever, right? <laughs> it's like the, the punchline. I mean, part. come on. It's, it's just everything. Right? Uh, right. I mean, the perfect dog that fit the, the life. And, you know, I realized that because... I mean, my job was actually getting people drunk for a living. So the more people would come into our clubs and get wasted, yeah. uh, often uh, maybe cheat on their spouses. I mean, right? There was th this was some some dark stuff going on um, at the highest end nightclubs in New York City. Uh, the more all of that happened, the more money I made, the more successful I became. So it was come as an inverse uh, correlation to morality, right? Like the the more immoral I became. The, the more successful I would become. And I just realized that if I continued down this path, I would leave perhaps the most meaningless legacy a person could leave. I might die before 40 of some overdose or, you know, think I was snorting cocaine and snort heroin instead. And that could be over. I'd seen that happen. Yeah. What, what was the moment you realized that? I mean, what changed? Well, it was, it started with this vacation in Punta del Este in Uruguay. And it was over New Year's Eve. And it was just this taking stock of, wow, beautiful place. I'm on a yacht. Uh, my girlfriend's in the cover of a, ca of a magazine. I spent $1,000 on fireworks. There's magnums of Dom Perignon everywhere. I mean, just 
private planes. Uh, well, what, what, what's better than this? And how is it possible that I'm not ultimately satisfied by this? This is what I've been chasing yeah. for 10 years. Yeah, the dog that caught the car. <laughs> yeah, right? it was the, exactly. That's a great way of saying it. Uh, and I just realized, I think the big realization was that there would never be enough. Mm. Someone would always have more. Someone would have a more beautiful girlfriend, a better watch, a better job. Yeah. You know, if I ever got a plane, somebody would have a bigger plane. <laughs> and it was this endless pursuit of more, of selfishness, of hedonism. It was all about what I could accumulate, what I could amass, how people would look at me mm. and envy the things that I had. And, you know, I, I might have written this in the book. You know, it felt like the game of musical chairs where the mm. music stops and for the first time I didn't have a place to sit. And it was this just this moment of disruption. It was this kind of cathartic moment. So, um, you know, I found my way back to a very lost faith uh, after 10 years. And I hadn't gone to church. I hadn't read the Bible or been interested in, in the teachings of, of anything. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I came back. I think I opted back into a, a lost Christian faith, but really through the lens of social justice and service. And I rediscovered a, a Jesus who seemed to be against the religious establishment of the day, against the hypocrisy mm. um, of people. I mean, I was a hypocrite. I remember reading in the book of James uh, on this vacation that true religion was to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted. So I was, I was clearly 0 for 2. I'd done <laughs> nothing to serve the poor, either with my time or my money. And I actually polluted the world for a living. Um, the more people, you know, would, would get wasted, uh, the more success yeah. I would have. That's a so it was dark. this realization. And then it kind of led to a six month process of, of trying to shed the vices one by one. And, uh, you know, it eventually led me, uh, about nine months later to this, this start over moment, this clean sheet of paper where I left New York, I sold almost everything I owned, uh, and wanted to make my life look completely opposite. So that was a very clear intention. I realized that a pivot was not needed. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is useful for somebody. I mean, it wasn't a small course correction. It was like sail and exactly in the, find the exact 180 degrees, like keep nothing of the former life, lose every single thing and just pretty much do the opposite of what you've been doing. I, I think that that's actually a surprising common desire for people who they just want to start over. Mm -hmm. They want to disappear. They want they want a new name. They want a new life. In fact, we'll live in the cabin in the woods, right? We've yeah. heard these, this mystery. We want to get off of our phones and our devices and we're enslaved to these things and just yeah. go live in the mountains. Yeah. And just reset, just re maybe reconnect, connect to something deeper. Um, so how well did that work out for you? Um, I was very fortunate. I mean, I got this incredible opportunity to join a humanitarian mission in West Africa. Uh, that took me to a country called Liberia which at the time was the poorest country in the world. And I embedded with a group of humanitarian doctors and surgeons. Um, and my role in this volunteer mission, uh, ironically, I had to pay $500 a month just to volunteer. So nobody, nobody would take me at first. Yeah, you couldn't just find like I, Red I, I Cross. Couldn't, I couldn't or... volunteer. Nobody would take me because I was this nightclub promoter and, and those skills didn't seem portable <laughs> in any way to the humanitarian space. But eventually one organization said, look, if I paid them, $500 a month, and uh, I could sign up and be their, their photojournalist. And I I'd, 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 I'd had a journalism degree from NYU that I'd never used and was a pretty good writer, pretty good photographer. And I, I think I understood that 
maybe my gift or my skill set really lie in being a promoter. I had promoted this idea that if you got past my velvet rope and inside the club and if you spent $1,000 on a bottle of Cristal champagne and you were sitting with all the beautiful people, then your life had meaning. Right. And to be successful at what I was doing, you're just constantly, you're, te- you're spinning up this story, this mystique. Mm-hmm. So I was really interested to see whether those skills of promoting could promote something altogether different. The redemptive, humanitarian, compassionate work of a group of doctors and surgeons who instead of flying to the Maldives you know, for a, a month vacation every year, instead took that month off and went and operated for free in the poorest country in the world and people who couldn't afford access to medical care. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I re- and, and realized I would, I would switch community as well. You know, a lot of people say, you know, how is it? So, so I had this moment where I, um, I was going to be living on a 522-foot hospital ship. So imagine a giant white ocean liner that used to carry passengers from Europe to the Far East as a cruise liner. The ship had been gutted, turned into a state-of-the-art hospital, uh, and it would sail up and down the West African coast, bringing the best doctors and surgeons to people who couldn't afford it. So there was something really symbolic uh, about me walking up the gangway of the ship leaving all of the detritus of my former life on land and then sailing away to not only a new continent I'd never been to before, but to this new life, you know, sailing away into the unknown. So I had this, this real clean break where I smoked three packs of cigarettes the night before I got on the ship and I got fantastically drunk. And, uh, you know, and then I, I joined, I surrendered my passport to this mission and I never smoked again. I never touched Coke or any of that stuff. Even again. to this day, not a single never cigarette. gambled again, not a single cigarette. No, wow. um, not a dragon. My wife will have like two or three, you know, a year and I'm jealous because she hasn't met all the right times, like in Italy, you know, after a bottle of wine, and, yeah. you know, out with the locals. Uh, no, I, I, you know, I haven't, I, I didn't gamble, uh, uh, just never looked at porn again. I mean, I just kind of walked away from all of the trappings, uh, all of the vices of that former life. So I think there was a, I, I, I felt like I had to do my part as well and make the clean break. Um, what I think made that easy was my community shifted. So I'm with doctors. Okay. So they don't think smoking is a good idea. You're on a hospital ship, right? There's not a culture of smoking. There's not a culture of cocaine or marijuana no, that, or gambling, that's huge. right? And, and I do think that the addiction, as much obviously as nicotine is a, a real physical addiction, a very intense one, that that social, that social milieu yes. that we're in is part of what keeps that pattern in place, I think. Yes. So, so I was very insight. fortunate to be around people who valued the exact opposite of maybe what my nightclub friends you know, would value. Yeah. So which was getting drunk and getting laid. You know, these were doctors who were there with their families and their kids who valued service, who valued yeah. um, morality, who valued compassion. So I think that made it very easy for me to just say, this is way better. I don't miss the smoking. I mean, smoking was actually the hardest of all of them. You know, I remember, you know, doing the blister packs of Nicorette on the ship. And I had, there was one moment where I had probably four packs of gum, you know, for the blister <laughs> squares of gum. And I had the patch on. Wow. But that was it. I was determined to, to never go back to those former vices. Mm. And I believe that if I could do my part there, this new uh, story for my life would have the chance to unfold. Yeah. And, a, and a very different path uh, could, could evolve, I guess. Yeah. Well, and as you said, and I personally, as a coach, I appreciate you saying, I'm not into advice. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to give advice. But I think a few things that others, you know, people listening, if they didn't hear it in what you shared, that 
first of all, you were able to take your skills of journalism, communication, building relationships in a large way, and redirect those in service. So it's not like any life is ever wasted. Any right. experience, any education, it can all be repurposed or redirected. And then as you've talked about consciously creating a social, a new social group, even though you might not have realized that was what you were doing, that was a part of the path that was pretty significantly different. And you talk about learning, like meeting people like Dr. Gary. Yeah. Right. Will you just share a little bit about him? Why was he such a powerful force for you? And what did you learn from him? Yeah, well, I, my my initial idea was I was going to give one of the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted back in service. So I only signed up for one year. In my mind, I was going to do a year and then I'd figure out what was next. I'd probably come back and you know, not into the clubs. But maybe I'd own a restaurant or do something else in hospitality. Um, when I met Dr. Gary, he was the chief medical officer on the ship and he was kind of the moral compass, you know, the, the Mother Teresa character of this huge operation. There were 400 volunteer crew living on aboard the ship. And I learned that he, like me, had signed up for a short term, even shorter. He had uh, initially signed up for three months. And when I walked up the gangway of the ship, you know, hoping to embrace a new life, he had been there for 21 years. So he was so moved by his three-month experience that he never returned to his uh, plastic surgery practice in California and went all in on service to, uh, as he would say, the poor and needy, people who needed access to, to the kind of care that he could provide. So that was just amazing to me that someone had become a lifer, effectively, had, had taken an idea of, I'm just going to, I'm going to donate a little bit of time and then, oh no, this is all I ever want to do for the rest of my life. And he made it look really good. He made it look really good. Well, that's amazing to, to think, you know, we're always teaching whether we mean to or not, mm -hmm. you know, by the example that, that our lives are. And for Dr. Gary to show you, you know, to be the embodiment of somebody mm -hmm. who's devoted an entire life to service, I, I imagine right. that was pretty pivotal at that time in your life. Yeah. And I don't think he realized at the time the impact that he had. You know, when he was reading the book, I think we exchanged a few emails. I think he was surprised because he was just doing his Dr. Gary thing, Right. We've been doing it for 21 years. I'm just some new kid that walks up the gangway of the ship like 20,000 other kids had, you know, over the decade. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and to, to that point, I'm sure he's touched thousands of others just like me who could look at someone who would show up for that long and say, wow, that, that kind of determination. That, I mean, it's, it's what so many people admire about Steve Jobs. I mean, the guy just never gave up. You know, think what you want, but through failure, through getting kicked out of the company. I mean, he just kind of was dedicated to one thing. Um, he wasn't a dilettante, right? I think we see a lot of, uh, we see a lot of dilettante behavior today. Oh, I'm going to work at a job for 1.2 years. I'm working in the next one for 0 0.9 years. And, yeah. you know, I want 10 experiences throughout my 20s and you become a master of none. Yeah. So there was something, uh, and, and, and that was me working 40 clubs. I mean, I didn't stick at one club. We would just get bored. So over 10 years, I was averaging four different venues that we would effectively bring people to and then ditch and then move on. And there was something so attractive about uh, a man who could stay committed to one cause for such a long period of time. I will say, as we're sitting here, he's now been on that ship 35 years. Holy cow. So he's still going. That's Three and awesome. Half he's operating today, uh, I think, in Guinea, uh, West Africa on that ship three and a half decades later. That's amazing. Still with Mercy Ships? Still with Mercy Ships, yeah. That's incredible. 
Let me turn the conversation to an exploration of another value that I've heard you talk about the importance of, which is, um, which is integrity. So the one story as I listened that really impressed me about integrity was with Michael Birch yeah. about how you were within days of shutting down Charity Water because of your insistence on keeping the money that went to clean, fund clean water, not to use that for operations. So I'm kind of maybe leading this, but I'm wondering if you'll tell a little bit about that, yeah. that story of how close you came and, and then him coming and seeing the operation and, and, sure. and if integrity played a part in that, like I, I think it did. Yeah, so a little background to that story. So um, just catching people up. So I, I join the ship. Uh, I, I'd sign up for one year. That one year becomes two years. And in the second year, I'd seen so many things. I'd been exposed to leprosy and cleft lips and facial tumors and uh, burns and just so many problems when you live in a country with no access to healthcare, uh, in a country where there was one physician for every 50,000 citizens. Um, you know, our comparison here, I think we have a doctor for every 300 of us. Wow. So I saw so much uh, pain, suffering, disease in, in extremism. Um, however, the one thing that struck me the most was the lack of access to clean water across the country. Uh, and when I was there in Liberia, 50% of the people were drinking dirty, contaminated, diseased water. They were drinking from uh, brown, viscous rivers. They were drink, drinking from green swamps. I mean, water we wouldn't let an animal drink. Um, but yet that was all that they had. So uh, Dr. Gary really encouraged me. Well, he, he, we were talking and exploring a lot about the link between so much of the disease that we were seeing on the ship and the lack of access to clean water um, and learned there were 26 different diseases that you can track directly to, to bad water. Um, at the time, this is a crazy stat, but half of the world's hospital beds throughout the planet were occupied by people who had bad water to drink. So he effectively said, if you're really interested in pursuing a life uh, like mine uh, of global health, the best thing you could do to get everybody clean water, you know, instead of helping us raise money for the next very expensive hospital ship, you would just go make sure everybody in this country had clean water. Maybe we wouldn't even need to sail the hospital ship into this country because we would just eliminate so much of the disease. So that led to the creation of Charity Water um, 12 years ago. So I was 30 when I came back from West Africa, started the organization, very simple mission to bring clean and safe drinking water to everybody in the world. Simple but um, big. Sim simple but big, <laughs> sure. And at the time, there were a billion people without water. So yeah, this is this was a big, massive problem. It, it's uh, working. A billion people. Yeah, it's the, the number's coming down for sure. And it is working. Uh, so that was the mission. So we would know that Charity Water had accomplished our mission when every single human being on earth had access to life's basic need. Everybody had access to clean water. Um, however, as I started the organization and started talking to potential donors and potential supporters, I realized that this was going to be incredibly difficult because so many people didn't trust charities. And I would hear stories of scandal, stories of mismanagement of funds, stories of ineffective philanthropy or bureaucracy or opacity, and just all of these problems, myriad problems that people seem to have with charities writ large. And I realized that if we were going to make a significant dent in an issue, as you said, this big, an issue as big as the water crisis, we would need a completely new construct, a new, we would need to imagine a new business model. 
and to speak to some of those objections. So I, I was really fortunate to not know any better. I'm just a 30-year-old kid who had experience running clubs for 10 years and running around as a photojournalist uh, trailing a bunch of doctors for two years. So I didn't know how you were supposed to run a charity. I didn't know anything about traditional institutional philanthropy. I just took the cue from everyday people that I was talking to who worked at MTV, who, who worked at the local bank or in you know, retail at the mall and realized that maybe I could speak to some of those objections by creating a new business model. And uh, we, we've done a lot of different things and people can read more about that in the book if they're interested in the, the, um, some of the differentiators. But the most pivotal one was this 100% model, this belief that most people are not giving to charity because they don't believe that the money will actually go to solve the problem, go to meet the needs of the people that have been marketed to them. And, you know, that's what I just kept hearing over and over again. So I said, well, I wonder if we could create a model where we could just bazooka that objection, where we could just take it off the table and we could say 100% of every donation Charity Water takes, whether someone gives a dollar or a million dollars or $10 million uh, or $1,000, 100% of the money would go directly to fund projects that would help people get clean water, projects that we would then prove using satellite images and later remote sensors, but we would, we would be accountable and transparent to our work. And then somehow in another bank account, we would raise the money for the overhead separately. So that was the idea. Um, and then, you know, people couldn't say, oh, how much is my money is actually going to reach? 100% would always be the answer. Even the credit card fee. Even the credit card fees. Well, I said, if we're going to actually say 100%, you know, for there to be true integrity, uh, we should pay back the 3% Amex or, you know, MasterCard fee. That's amazing. Um, so to do that, I had to open up another bank account and effectively raise the overhead separately from a, hopefully at the beginning, a small group of business people, of entrepreneurs, people who would understand, hey, there are going to be overhead costs. There is going to be an office and rent that needs to be paid. Somebody's going to need to go buy the Epson copy machine. Somebody's going to need to pay the salaries and, and eventually benefits and healthcare. But I thought a very small group of visionary investors could catch that vision, fund those costs so that the distrusting public um, would get this pure play where all of their money could go straight to impact. Um, that worked really well when it came to the distrusting public. So we raised millions of dollars out of the gate just in the first year, year and a half. Um, but I was really struggling to raise the overhead money. And effectively, you've got two different messages and you've got to run these two different bank accounts or these two different messages in perfect balance at the same time. So I don't run them in perfect balance and I'm left at this moment a year and a half in where I've got $881,000 in the bank for the water projects and it's about to go out and you know, help a bunch of people get clean water and drill 80 wells or so. But I'm about to miss payroll and run out of money in the overhead side. And the advice I was getting at the time was to go and borrow against the 880 grand, which would have been, oh, eight or nine months of working capital. Uh, and people would say, you've got money. What do you mean you're broke? You're not broke. Just write an IOU. Just borrow money's fungible. You'll pay it back. You got to pay your people. I mean, they have left higher paying jobs. You can't miss payroll, bro. And I remember just thinking, I mean, just being so upset at that idea or the insinuation. I mean, we made this promise to the public. If we borrowed one penny, I really believe this, from the account for water projects, our integrity would be compromised. There'd be a crack at the foundation. I mean, we might as well just quit and resign in shame rather than, than, than go on. I mean, you can't um, 
we would have betrayed the public's trust. We would have broken our promise. So I was going to shut the organization down, send all that money out to the field, help as many people as possible, and then just cry business model failure and say, hey, this model didn't work. Um, I couldn't raise the overhead fast enough and separately to keep this thing going. And, you know, I remember praying at the time with very little faith. I mean, there was, I didn't think that, you know, there was going to be any sort of answer to my prayer. And, you know, wouldn't you know, uh, a complete stranger uh, at that moment, that week, walks into the office. Uh, it was an entrepreneur who had just sold his company to AOL, sits down with me, spends two hours, understands what we're doing and what we're trying to do, and leaves the meeting and writes a million-dollar check into the overhead account. Wow. And we go from uh, you know, running out of cash, insolvent, to over a year of working capital, which then allowed us to build what's now a very sophisticated, multi-year, multi-tier giving program that we call The Well, um, that now has 133 families funding the overhead. Um, that's also made it possible for over a million donors now to get this pure play of of giving. So I, I think the lesson there was I was absolutely willing to die on the the values there. I mean, it, you know, I would much rather even if we did borrow against it and we managed to raise the overhead, that would always be there. That time that we compromised, I mean, it would be this kind of fatal um, hidden skeleton in the closet. So I would have. I uh, certainly wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for, for Michael Birch, uh, amazing entrepreneur who had sold Bebo. And funny, he's actually flying in tonight. Uh, I'm going to see him in a few hours. Um, lives in San Francisco. And he, uh, he and his family have, have become dear friends. And we've now traveled to 13 different countries together. Um, they've been integral to the mission. That was really their start of impact. But uh, I would have been happy. To, I would have much rather run no organization and at least stayed true to our values and know that I didn't. I didn't lie. I didn't compromise. Um, and this was not true about my former life. I was a liar in my former life. So I think it was, you know, wanting to make good, wanting to make sure that everything was very different. You know, I read about this in the book, but there was a time when I threw a party to nightclub and I advertised that we were going to give a percentage of the proceeds to a charity. And I remember sitting with my partner after the party. We made a lot of money that night. And I think we decided to give 1% right? So that it would technically be true, but I'm not sure we even followed through on the donation Wow, out of busyness. It wouldn't have been important to us to follow through on the donation. Yeah. It, it really is a different, a different way of being. And, you know, I've heard Buckminster Fuller said, integrity is the essence of all things successful. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And what, oh, I really like that. and what you're saying, I'll, I'll text it yeah. to you. I'll text you that, but this idea, and then, you know, Werner Erhard says without integrity, nothing works. And what I'm impressed by as I read your story is that many people probably see the sexy parts, the, the galas, the, you know, the videos online, the things, and they want to be a part of it. But I wonder how many of those people really perceive that the integrity that you're now talking about is an integral part. Okay. Integrity is an integral part, right? But um, yeah. I, I perceived when, you, when I heard you share that story about Michael visiting and he saw the integrity that you had. And I suspect that was a, a big part of why he wanted to be a supporter of your work. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I would have been oblivious to that at the time, but you know, I, I believe that so much more important than what you do is the way that you do things. Yeah. Um, it's character, you know, even I was, um, I do a lot of public speaking these days and I'm always trying to get that extra 2% better. So I just started working with a, a friend who'd spent four years writing about public speaking 
And his big observation after four years of studying public speakers was that character matters more than anything else. Interesting. Character is more than content. Um, the audience is trying to decide, do I like this person? Do I want to root for them? Um, do I believe that they have character? Now, I'm sure you can con people and um, they're, they're, um, well, there have been stories, but I just thought that was so interesting that, you know, it's character. It, 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 the content is almost less important if it comes from a place of deep character. Yeah. That that is what resonates. That's what makes that connection that, that woos people to the cause. We feel it as much as, or maybe more than we per, intellectually, you know, perceive yeah, at, at that gut level. Right? Yeah. Well, okay. So let me just, I think two more questions before we transition. Mm -hmm. Um, You've talked a little bit here about prayer, and you've talked a little mm -hmm. bit about faith. And it's my experience in our society that spirituality, faith, things like prayer are things that we don't talk a lot about. I feel like we don't have public conversations about these. And of course, we, it's very personal. You know, these things are very personal. But um, you say in the book, over time, I've come to embrace the mystery of faith. Mm-hmm. And then you say, I think it's my job to work as hard as I possibly can, but also to pray. And here you've talked about that. Will you tell me, what do you mean by embrace the mystery of faith? And as a practical matter, how can we do that? Oh, wow. Um, well, personally, look, I, I believe in the power of, of prayer. Uh, I have absolutely seen the most radical and uncanny answers to prayer in I mean, I have so many stories that, you know, are, that have, um, how do I say this, that have increased my faith in such dramatic levels. I mean, things that I would never be able to write off to coincidence. I have also prayed for things to happen that feel completely just that have not happened. Um, my mom just died of pancreatic cancer in four months from diagnosis to death. I mean, I was praying like crazy. Um, she was not that old. Um, she was doing fine outside of that. And no amount of prayer or faith or belief, you know, for my, myself, my father, um, changed that outcome. Um, but so I kind of, you know, you hold these two things in intention. So I think it's it's the job to pray. I mean, I pray for the safety of my kids. I pray for the, the character of my kids to develop, that they'll be kind, that they will know and love God, that they will, um, you know, be people of integrity. Um, I, I think you have to, so that's kind of the prayer, but then you got to work hard and you know, there's, there's a, there's a discipline, there's a correction that also happens when my kids are being punks, <laughs> you know, that, so I think it's, uh, I don't know, I guess I've just, you hold that tension. I, I feel like, uh, whatever your beliefs, um, we don't always get our way or, or what feels so obvious in the natural. You know, I mean, uh, for a sick child to be healed, for people in the world to get clean water now, I mean, I would think that, you know, I would just snap my fingers and, you know, God doesn't want anybody holding. I was, I was in Niger a couple of years ago with a woman in the Sahel Desert who lost eight of her kids. Yeah, she's telling me that she buried eight children. She's telling me their names, how old they were at the time of death. I mean, that is not uh, the picture of the kingdom of God, right? And I think, so there's, there's prayer, but then we built her a well so that no more kids would die because she was living on top of clean groundwater. So I think there's a, there's a response, there's an action. Um, I, the, the book of James is my favorite book in the Bible because it just, 
you know, it talks a lot about when uh, faith is great, but it really requires deeds. It requires action. Um, and that, that, that if you really have true faith, then the actions are an expression of that. So, you know, I should say for the record, Charity Water is in no way, nor has it ever been a religious organization. Um, it was birthed out of, uh, you could argue a faith experience that I had, but I would say a small portion of the people who would work here would do what I do on a Sunday, um, or would believe what I believe, you know, when it comes to faith. Um, and I don't think that you should have to do that to be able to use your gifts to serve others. Um, and that's been a really freeing and exciting thing. I mean, we have, uh, such a wide diversity of supporters, you know, on, on, from the far right to the far left of the political spectrum to, uh, Jews, atheists, Christians, Mormons, uh, Jehovah's witness. I mean, uh, that's, that's the beauty. You mentioned Michael Birch and you know, he's, he and his family have given close to $20 million now. You know, he thinks I am a lunatic for having any <laughs> faith. I mean, he is about, uh, as staunch an atheist as possible, but, um, we have a great relationship and we're, we're really amazing friends and he is very uh, excited about the work that we're doing. So doesn't care that that's an expression of my faith. He just thinks it makes sense for every human being to have clean water. Sure. Yeah. It's apolitical, right? It's water. apolitical. It's irreligious. It's something, it's one of the very few things that everybody can agree on. You know, we can agree to agree on clean water regardless of, of your, you know, your beliefs on every other spectrum. I mean, it's, that's the beauty of doing what I do 12 years later. Um, you know, I never come off of a stage or end a podcast and hopefully this one's no different and have people say, stop it. I stop giving people clean water, Scott, (laughs) let the children die from dysentery. Let the women walk six hours a day and be attacked by wild animals at the water hole. Let them be raped in the jungle on the way for water. And no one ever says that. So it's, it's actually a, it's a wonderful unifying uh, issue. And then I think the way that we have run Charity Water and the values that we have embraced uh, also have made it invitational. It's made it very easy for um, children to join. We have four-year-olds that are, are raising money. Uh, we have 90-year-olds that are giving from their pension. Yeah, That's been really fun, to, and we've tried to celebrate that. And that's part of, I think, what is really beautiful to me about Charity Water is that it is inspirational. It is invitational. It's not making people wrong, shaming them you know, for, for the horrors going on in the world and how dare you stand by. We're just saying, don't you want to help? What, yeah. you know, can you bring what you have, your time, your talent, your money to this issue? And we'll try and you know, we'll just focus on being the best stewards of what you bring as possible. Well, and, and just maybe a last thought on this about faith is as I look at some of what I think are the most powerful leaders, or at least some of the most conspicuous and effective leaders throughout history, whether it's Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, that their action, as you said, you know, is perhaps an expression of their faith. And there is a deep spiritual source there. And, and so for anybody listening without preaching in any way, just inviting them to think, you know, if you're maybe where Scott was, meaning somewhere that you not, your life is not a reflection of the life you want. You're not making the difference that you want to make. Perhaps there's something to look at in your relationship with, with faith, um, something to explore Well, I was there. the God of my life for 10 years. You know, I was, I was in charge. It was all about me. You know, there was no idea of submitting to, to any other uh, belief or value system. Um, and I think that's the big shame. You know, I'm, uh, that's the big change. I'm not, I'm not the God now, you know, I'm, 
I really look at my role as the as servant to a much higher uh, power, a much higher ideal, um, a, a different way. I mean, you know, love love is important. Charity, you know, that's what I love about um, charity. Water, just the the word charity means love. It goes uh, back to the the Latin caritas, I and mean, it means to help your neighbor in need. So I think we need more of that in the world, more people walking towards that and not away from it, uh, either being skeptical or cynical about charity, about giving, about generosity, about compassion, about empathy. So we're trying to make it look, I, I loved, um, best, one of the best things I've seen recently was uh, the Mr. Rogers movie and just that beautiful saying of let's make goodness attractive. Mm. So I, I would hope that we're able to do that at Charity Water with the stories that we tell and the people that we celebrate uh, around the world. And, and again, not, not hitting people over the head, uh, not peddling in shame and guilt, but just inviting people, hey, we're doing this amazing thing. Do you want to, do you want to join the party? I mean, it's a party. We're, we're creating parties around the world where people get clean water for the first time. Um, we're celebrating health. We're celebrating better education. We're celebrating women and girls who are now empowered to lead their families and their communities and their countries forward. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, then maybe this is a great place to talk about the spring and to sure. extend that invitation to anyone who's hearing this that maybe hasn't already joined. Will you talk a little bit about what that is and, and why it's important and how people can participate? Yeah. So that's a great way that uh, people listening can, can learn more, more about us. Um, the spring is basically Netflix for clean water or Spotify for clean water. Uh, we wanted to just create a giving community of people who would show up not just once, you know, maybe not just watch a video online or hear something or read something and say, oh, I'm going to give $100 uh, or, or whatever, $10 or $1,000. Or donate um, their but, birthday, which yeah, people can do as yeah, well. Exactly. But we said, look, the, you know, we're, we're loyal to so many of these companies these days. I mean, the average person listening would have 10 subscriptions, right? The HBOs and Cinemaxes and Hulus and Spotify's and Netflix and Dropboxes and, you know, YouTube Red. I mean, this is, we live in a world where we are paying for content, often it's actually distracting us from our real work or our families or our purpose. So that's a, that's a whole nother topic. But could we create a, a community of people who would show up for clean water in the same way that they're loyal to these other um, content or, or storage companies? And we would make a promise that whatever they gave, whether it was $30 a month, which is enough to get one person clean water, or $60 a month, which would be enough for two people to get clean water, or $10 a month, um, we would use 100% of the money to directly help people get clean water month in, month out. And we would share stories of impact. So we would say, look, these are the people you're helping in Cambodia. These are the people that are getting help in Ethiopia or Malawi or, um, or Nepal or Bangladesh. Or... So uh, that's called The Spring. And we weren't sure it was going to work. Launched it two years ago. And now it's just been amazing to see this community grow worldwide. We have spring members now in 110 different countries. That's awesome. Um, it's so cool when people write me now and talk about the sacrifices they're making to join the spring. So people say, I, I just had a teenager write recently and say, I canceled my wrestling subscription so that I could give that money. You know, wow. I, I don't know, WWF or whatever, I guess was selling some sort of subscription. Um, we have people, you know, that say, I wish I could give more than $10 a month, but it's coming out of my pension and I'm in my nineties. But you know, I've had the ability to live to 90. You know, I'd like to make that possible for other people. And I realize they need clean water to do that. So we would love, for sure, it's an invitation for anybody listening to learn more about us. Um, you could just go to charitywater.org slash 
the spring or charitywater.org slash spring. And there's actually a, a video which tells the whole story of Charity Water. Um, if you want to learn a little more about, um, about our work and about this issue and about just how the organization tries to function differently. No, that's awesome. My wife and I are part of the spring. Thank you. My wife and I are too. Yeah. My kids are my kids are a little young, but we're just we're on the uh, we're on the quarter for garbage kick at the moment. I have a four year old that um, that has saved up seven dollars at the moment. That's awesome. But I think he wants to buy toys, so I'm gonna I need to work on him. Okay, so a few questions. Um, the enlightening right the see I have a hard time saying it. The enlightening lightning round. Okay, I like it. I haven't I haven't heard of that before. A few questions designed to be short answer. You can answer as long as you want. Okay. Number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Life is like a mm, beautiful sunset. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better? Organization. All right. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Give. Number four. I feel like I just want to touch on that real quick. I've heard you say that you encourage people to say give, not give back. Yeah. Will you just explain that a little bit? Yeah. Look, I, we hear a lot of this language giving back. My company's giving back. Um, I just, I don't think that language is helpful. I think it's, it's the language steeped in debt and obligation. You know, you've got an iPad in front of me. If I grab that out of your hands, you might say, give it back. You know, it's because I've taken, uh, to me, that language implies that we have gotten so fat and we have pillaged and plundered to such extent that we should probably give a little back and throw a few scraps to the poor. Um, so I don't like the back part, um, because it's, it, it implies that something has been taken. So I just tell people drop back, just talk about giving, just build a culture of giving, frame it only in the positive, build a culture of giving in your family, build a culture of giving in your uh, in your company or in your faith community, um, frame giving in the positive giving, because it's a joy and it's a blessing, not something you feel you have to do. Yeah. Um, because then you'll de you'll deprive yourself. Of, right. And I believe my last riff on this, the more you give, the more you give, right? We've, we've also, we've all heard like, it's more, you know, blessed to give than receive. I just, I think the more people get in the habit of giving, the more fun they have giving and the more they want to give. Um, but it's the mindset shift that, you know, I think framing that in the, wow, this, I have an opportunity to give. And that could be time. It could be money. It could be mentorship. There's so many different ways of give. So I just like the word give uh, as a standalone. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? I really like C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy uh, in, the, in the faith space. I like a lot of stuff from C.S. Lewis. Um, these days, I've been gifting E.B. White's Here's New York. Uh, Why that book? I have a bunch. Oh, it's a wonderful book about New York City and just the unique, crazy place that this is. And it's, it was written a long time ago, and it feels like New York has not changed the, the way that he now, I just, I read it recently. And so I've, I've been on eBay, you know, looking for first editions and they're like eight or nine bucks, you know, they're really cheap, wow. but uh, the idea is giving them to employees here who are relocating into the wonderful place. It's New York city. That's awesome. All right. Number five. So you travel a ton. 
What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I like being comfortable on planes. So I'm the, I'm doing, as you said, about 70 flights a year. Some, some years before my, my kids were born, almost a hundred. Um, I'm big on really warm, cozy wool socks. I have some nice wool socks and I like the long underwear and sweatprints. I hate being cold on a plane. So I am wearing two layers, cozy sweatpants, long underwear every time, you know, really, really warm socks. And uh, I'm, I, I may look a little stupid on planes, but, but you're warm. Uh, I'm, I'm warm and I'm comfortable. <laughs> Are you flying something above coach class yet? That's an interesting story. So, you know, again, back to the integrity or the stewardship value, um, you know, Charity Water has now raised almost $400 million. And again, that's thanks to the generosity of, of everyday people from uh, all around the world that have said yes to the, this issue of clean water. Um, we have never bought a business class ticket for myself or anybody else at the organization. And that's just a stewardship principle. Um, I am taking the upgrades whenever I get them. I mean, I'm the highest status with Delta. I'm, I'm a longtime Diamond member. Um, believe me, I am using those vouchers yeah. uh, to, to upgrade whenever possible. Um, and if a conference, if Google's flying me out to Europe um, for a day, I'm happy to let them pay for it. Um, but never our donors. That's amazing. Uh, so I, I'll tell you a really funny story about this. I was with, actually yesterday, I was at a conference. I was just talking about this. And it was a couple of people who live in New Zealand and they can actually afford to fly business. And he said, think about it this way. He said, think about it if, you know, you were expecting to fly business and you turn up and they put you in the back of the bus, right? And you're just all upset. And, you know, you just had I don't know, 16 hours to New Zealand of a really uncomfortable flight, Right. Let's just say, and this is just a business travel. And he says, imagine you land and this, the, um, the steward walks up and says, I'm so, so sorry for your inconvenience. Here's an envelope with $7,000. What would you think? You'd be like, oh my gosh, no convenience at all. Yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, when it's $7,000 of your donor's money, right? The difference between, I mean, I'm flying to Ethiopia all the time. It's 900 in coach and it's like 7,900 in, in business. So that's, that's three quarters of a well. I mean, you start putting that in people. So it's, it's been a very, very easy decision to make uh, here at the organization, you know, 12 years in. Yeah, that, that's a big deal, that I, I think. Um, okay. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Mm. I am trying to get a lot better uh, um, I'm trying to get a lot better in my relationship with devices, with young kids, uh, shutting down the phone at night, getting it out of the bedroom, finding, uh, I just, I just, um, got a small point and shoot camera because that was my excuse of having the phone. I've got oh, a two year old camera. and a four year old. Yeah. So now I'm leaving the house, leaving my phone, you know, in the apartment and I'll just go out with the camera with the kids on bikes or, or whatever. So, um, I, I have not mastered that yet. Uh, I'm a, kind of power email. I mean, we're, you know, we're running an organization that's in a period of growth and we're hiring 20 people and there's, there's just a lot going on with the travel, but I'm really trying to, I, I feel like the phone is aging my brain poorly. Uh, and the device isn't just this constant on, uh, we, we're expected to be instantly texting people back, instantly emailing them back. And it just feels really unhealthy as a dad, as a husband, as a you know, it feels unhealthy for my emotionally. So I'm exploring more of the Sabbath, really trying to take a day off and just go dark. Good for you and your family. That's great. 
Um, what's one thing you wish every American knew? When it comes to giving, Americans believe that we are doing infinitely more than we are for the poor around the world. And, you know, one stat that I think shocks people is, so Americans are known as being very generous, give away a lot of money. Uh, only 4% of all that money goes to help people outside the United States of America. Only 4%, 96% of all American philanthropic giving stays here. Our faith communities, our hospitals, our universities. Are you talking about individuals? Yeah. Oh, okay. I because am. I understand there's like foreign aid and other. Yeah, but USAID is way, way less than people think too. Interesting. Look, so, so I wish that Americans would go and, and actually see how little we are doing to be a great neighbor, you mm -hmm. could argue, around the world. How little we are sharing our resources with people in, in dire need. You know, mm -hmm. who are not born into the same affluence as us. And mm -hmm. I just, every time I ask people, well, how much do you think is going over? Oh, 20%, 30%. Oh, it's tiny. 4%. Yeah. And we're spending it on military. <laughs> a lot of it. Yep. So, okay. Um, last question from the enlightening lightning round. What's the best relationship advice you've ever received and successfully applied? Expectations. Setting expectations are very, very important. Uh, I have, and I think I do this pretty well with my wife, sitting down, syncing calendars. Here's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Hey, this is going to be a, a month where there's a lot of travel, but then it's followed by a month where I'm home for three and a half weeks. And, uh, here's, you know, I just, just, uh, knowing what is coming mm -hmm. has been really, really helpful. And, and that's helped us with planning and, um, really not take, my wife or, or kids for surprise. Now I'm, I'm starting to do it with my son now. Okay. Listen, daddy's going to be gone for a week and a half in Rwanda and Uganda. It's going to feel like a really long time, but I'm coming back and then I'm taking the whole week off mm. and we're going to spend that time as a family. Just, you know, being able to communicate the ebbs and the flows. And, you know, I, I don't feel like I have balance in my life, but there's a, there's periods of extreme on, and then there's periods of hopefully extreme presence with, with the family and with loved ones. Yeah. Do you have a formal process? Do you do like a Sunday evening planning or not, not as good as I should. It's <laughs> no. more ad hoc, but, yeah, but you do um, I'll grab my wife and make her sit down next to me on the couch and look at the calendar for the next month. My wife's a creative. So she's, oh, can we do that later? I'm like, no, we have to do this now. You need to know what is coming up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the last question questions that I have for you, just a couple more about create the creative process mm -hmm. and how you got the book done. Before I get to that, let me just put this in here too. So I'm not squeezing it at the end. Um, as one way of expressing gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and everybody who's listening today, um, I've done a couple things. One, I've gone on charitywater.org and made a hundred dollar donation. Oh, thank you so much. And, um, it's, it's my, my pleasure. And I've also, I do this for every guest. I I'll go to kiva.org and I made a $100 uh, micro loan. Very cool, which will keep, keep giving. Yeah, that's right. So Thanks this so much for that. This was to a woman in, in Liberia, uh, a woman named Beatrice, who will use this money to buy more fish to sell. Oh, how cool. So that, that happened. And then um, let me ask this as well. So if people want to learn more from you, they want to learn more about Charity Water, they want to get involved, what would you have them do? Sure. I would say charitywater.org slash spring is the best place to start. Um, go watch that video. That'll lead you to others. Consider joining us in that community as you're able. 
Um, and then the book, Thirst, is, you know, I kind of put it all out there. It's it's 100,000 words of, of the personal story, growing the organization, some of the challenges and just screw-ups. I mean, we did some really boneheaded things early on and um, hope that by sharing some of those failures, it would uh, maybe uh, be a, a lesson for others and they could avoid some of the same mistakes. And, you know, one thing just to mention with the book, you know, 100% of my advance, all the proceeds go to the organization. So I don't make a penny from um, any of the any of the sales internationally or, or domestically. So you are actually supporting charity water and, and people that need clean water just by picking up thirst. That's awesome. That's really great. Okay. So the last question about the creative process. So writing a book is already very challenging and writing a book while you're running an organization and balancing all of your other home responsibilities and your own health and faith and all of that is challenging. Will you tell me just a thumbnail or whatever feels appropriate. How did you, as a practical matter, how did you get this book written? Yeah. Well, I knew that I wanted to work with a writing partner. So this is complicated by the fact that I think I'm a really good writer and I think I'm a better writer than I am at most things. I'm a better writer than a photographer, (laughs) better writer than CEO. I mean, I was a journalism major. I was writing for the local paper when I was 13. So this is just, um, I just, I loved reading as a kid. My parents would let me watch one hour of TV a week. So I just, I, I was an avid, avid reader and, and lover of, of English. So when I, I also realized that running this organization um, demanded everything from me. So I went, uh, probably met with four or five different uh, writers and um, finally clicked with this amazing woman uh, named Lisa Sweetingham in, in the Palisades in California and she just really worked with me to help me talk out the book, came to Uganda with me, uh, would try to get me to go there in these dark places that I didn't really want to go. Uh, I'm a futurist. I like thinking about forward. Um, and I think I was very fortunate because I had written so much during the process. Um, so there was a lot of stuff from childhood that was written down. Uh, the toughest part were the 10 years of club years where I was just just drugging and drinking my way through New York City. So we did a lot of interviews with people that I'd worked with, some people that I had screwed, uh, unfortunately, over that time, some club owners uh, that I'd worked for. And those interviews would trigger the memories. Oh my gosh, I, I completely forgot about that. Oh, I can tell you exactly what the air smelled like or where I was or, you know, right? So that they would bring back these vivid memories. Um, and then the Mercy Ships uh, the period from getting on that ship, I wrote almost every day mm-hmm. on the ship. So that was almost too much of my own words, uh, writing about the patients, writing about Dr. Gary, writing back home. So there were, oh, there were probably hundreds of thousands of words on record just from that two-year period. And it was then so helpful to have Lisa saying, this is not interesting. You know, you want to include it all. I mean, I was going to write a doorstop. I was going to write a half a million Word book. Well, if, it is your book. If anybody but, would let me. Uh, but thank goodness for Lisa. Well, and, and it, yeah, <laughs> thing, exactly. Thank goodness for Lisa. So it was, a, it was a really great collaboration. We spent a lot of time together. She became a, a member of the family. My wife loves her. Uh, and, uh, and then again, you know, the charity water stuff, so much was, was documented. I mean, there's a, there's a mentor in the, in the book uh, called Ross. And, you know, I think I just did a search of my email inbox and there were 10,000 emails plus. Oh my goodness. Uh, saved that we had written back and forth to each other. So it was just this wealth of information. It was really trying to find the most relevant parts that would 
uh, be useful to people, that would be interesting, that would move the story along. And then how did you structure your time? I mean, how long did it take from the time that you found Lisa and sure. agreed to work together to the time you got it done? And what did your working sessions sessions look like in between that? Two years uh, from the beginning to the end. And there would be uh, a lot of time on the phone with Lisa, a lot of time in person. And then there would be these moments where I would go off for a week and I would write in a cabin. I would leave my family. Um, Literally a I would cabin. write in a hotel, a cabin in the... Catskills. Um, somebody gave me a, a little writer's house in San, in Los Angeles. Um, wrote at a house in the winter in the Hamptons. So I would have these kind of week long blocks where you know Monday morning through Saturday, and then I would come back and see my kids on Sunday, and I'd go to work. Wow. Um, so really, the the family made some sacrifices during that period of time for sure. But I needed just the flow time to be completely disconnected from work and and in writing mode. Did you have a soundtrack? Music or no music? Oh, interesting. Um, the, I did kind of have a soundtrack. There's one song that I would write to, which is uh, William Orbit's version of Adagio for Strings that I would have on repeat. And that actually was something that I used to edit photos to in Liberia that just worked mm -hmm. for me. Um, the other song uh, that or album that I would play a lot was Weightless by Marconi Union, which they say is the most relaxing song in the world. Well, how did they measure concentration. that? <laughs> I don't know. It's a bunch of data scientists at MIT or something. No, there's I'm actually articles on that. There's, Amazing. I guess, look, analyzing the sound waves or th there's a whole science to that. But Marconi Union, weightless. It's on Spotify. It's awesome. Awesome. And then caffeine or no caffeine? Uh, caffeine and some red wine. And what's your favorite delivery vehicle for caffeine? Tea, coffee, energy Oh, drinks? just coffee. Yeah, I drink black coffee. Okay. And then final thing is, what do you say to someone who wants to complete their own book, mm -hmm. but they either maybe feel they don't, they don't know exactly what to say, they don't believe they can do it, they don't know where to start, or they're in the process, but they maybe feel stuck. What do you, what do you yeah. say to somebody there? I don't know. I was going to, I was going to, wow, it's really, really hard. <laughs> and then when you're done the book, then the hard work really starts. Yeah. Because <laughs> then you've got to get it out there and promote it. And that's, you know, some people who are really have a skill at writing, you know, almost turn into a, a shy, oh, I don't know if I really, was it good? Did I have anything to say? I mean, you've got to be freely out there believing that what you've said is, is what people need. Yeah. Um, to, to just cut through the noise of, you know, how many books are published and yeah. I don't have the stats, but it's all, it's all daunting. You have to be really committed, let's say to the process, yeah. um, all the way through and, and count the cost that, you know, I really thought that when I was done and turned the manuscript in, there was this kind of deep breath. No, 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 no. That's then, when the work then you starts. add another 12 to 15 months of really, really hard work. Yeah. Editing and promoting. Editing, promoting. Uh, book tour. I mean, you're out there. Uh, you're out there telling the story. What from your journalism background was useful for you? And were there any specific teachers or, you know, people just people that you learned from? What did you learn from them? What was useful for you? I think just curiosity. I'm a really curious person. I want to know how things work. I'm I'm interested in in motives and uh, that. Just I ask a lot of questions. Right on. Okay. Well, those, that was my final question. The last thing I just want to share with you is um, when I read about your Rolex in yeah. the book, um, I realized I have a Rolex. And <laughs> 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 
funny. Someone just asked me where where mine was uh, the other day. It's actually, this week someone just said, "Do you still have your Rolex?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you survive? I don't. I don't. Do you remember what happened with it? I do. I think I got drunk and I left it on a bedside table in Chicago. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. What kind was it? Do you remember? This is before Mercy Ships, uh, it was an Oyster Perpetual. So I bought I bought this Rolex about ten years ago, and I realize I don't wear it much anymore uh-huh. at all. So it just sits in my house. But I've been thinking um, that I've actually found somebody who's agreed to buy this. Yeah, As a, to donate or something. So then I want to give Charity Water the money oh, that's from this so watch. Cool. That's so, so cool. Can I see it? Yeah. So I understand a well is about 10 grand. Yeah. And somebody's going to pay me about 12 grand for this. Amazing. Actually, you can do a well for 12. They're 10 to 12. So it depends on the country. That's so before I leave here today, I want to give you a check for 12 grand oh for, the, for the sale That's of this so watch. cool. Yeah. See, look at that. You took something from your closet and yeah. a whole community is going to get access to clean water. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. Um, I'm just thinking about it. Do you ever want to come to the fields? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm just thinking about where to where to do that. Okay, let me think about it. What a cool, what a cool story. Yeah, so I actually bought this, and my story behind the watch was, I told myself that I was going to buy a black face steel Daytona Rolex yeah. when I achieved profitability for a business. And then it just, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And then I made a switch. I said, well, why don't I buy a white one instead? And I'll use it and say, I'll, every time I look at it, I'll remind myself, just love yourself as you are profitable, not profitable, whatever. And then I bought it and I was like, I don't need this. <laughs> you know? I'm going to take a picture of this. I should okay. put this on. Um, I'm just, I'm, I won't use your name, but I'm going to put this on. Uh, I'm going to put this on social and just tell a story. This is like, this inspires people to take Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.